In the Planet Earth podcast, the unique plant species which have evolved in Bristol. I'm Richard Hollingham, and I'll also be hearing how chemicals in contraceptives are feminising fish. They're producing proteins which are normally only found in females, yolk proteins, for example, which normally go into the eggs. They include alterations in structures within the testis, so the male gonad. They include, in particular, the presence of developing eggs within the testis. I'm halfway down a beautiful steep wooded valley which leads even further down to the sheer cliffs of the Avon Gorge just outside Bristol, surrounded by trees, undergrowth and slightly weirdly a almost mini castle next to me which is the ventilation shaft for the tunnel which runs beneath the hillside and just beyond that there are a few goats grazing on the slopes. Now this is the site of several rare plants. Some of them are found nowhere else in the world. And with me are Simon Hiscock, a professor of botany at the University of Bristol. I'm also joined by Mandy Leavers, education officer for the Avon Gorge and Downs Wildlife Project. Now Simon, I've, I've mentioned these, these rare plants. They're called sorbus. What is a sorbus? Well a sorbus, is, its common name is white bean because of the um, colour of the leaves in the spring. They're members of a big family, the rose family, Rosaceae, and the main groups in this gorge um, are commonly called white beans. We can't see the, the whiteness too clearly because we're, we're, we're here in the autumn and the leaves are on the turn. So but, point some out to me. Where, yes, where is ju- one? Just, just up there, there's one of the, the, the rare ones that we only find in the gorge, Sorbus bristoliensis, and also over here, Sorbus wilmotiana, which is another endemic to the gorge. And so they're, they're sort of spin, spindly trees with the, the leaves The leaves are the quite palish yeah. um, up at the top and they're Small falling at the moment and they have this sort of white tinge which is much more pronounced in the spring when they first come out. So what, what's special about them? What, what makes them different? Well, what's, what's special about the ones in the Avon Gorge is that we've got a process of evolution going on here that is constantly generating new genotypes, new species through processes of hybridisation. This is when two distinct either species or microspecies cross-pollinate to make hybrid seed. So all sorts of strange reproductive yes, te- well, te- the, the, has, has, has evolved. The, the, the hybrids reproduce principally by asexual reproduction, making seeds without sex. And then every so often there's a leaky bit of sex involved, back-crossing to one of the sexuals or to another form. And this then generates hybrids, which are then maintained by asexual reproduction so it's a very sort of fluid process and sounds torrid ongoing so mandy in terms of the the area here not just the individual species how important is this in conservation terms well, the Avon Gorge is considered to be one of the top three sites of rare plants in England. There are 27 nationally rare and scarce plants that grow here. So um, it's internationally important as a special area of conservation and also uh, nationally as a site of special scientific interest. I have to say, it doesn't look 
it's pleasant. It doesn't look particularly special. Well, it's a lot of the plants that grow here have been growing here for a very, very long time, and most of them are very, very small. The, the white beams are really an exception. Um, so things like the Bristol onion and the Bristol rockcress, which just grow here and nowhere else in the rest of the country, but they all belong to a community of uh, limestone grassland plants, and that's what's particularly important about the Avon Gorge, um, is most of these rare plants grow in these open grasslands. Um, if you've been here um, 150 years ago, this area would have been grazed, and uh, you'd have vast areas areas of open limestone grassland but the grazing began to decline um, in the mid-1800s and stopped altogether in the 1920s and without all those little mouths nibbling away trees and scrub began to grow. People also deliberately introduced plants in an effort to beautify the gorge and downs um, and that led to a huge conservation nightmare really. (laughs) Those um, those plants began to grow over and shade out the rarer plants. And you mentioned the grazing. We've seen some goats this morning. They're, they're new, are they? They are. They are a little herd of goats. We've got six um, cashmere goats, which came from the Great Orm in North Wales. Um, and they've been here since uh, June last year. Um, and uh, they're part of um, a conservation programme, which is really to basically tackle that scrub. So that the goats are here really to nibble back that bramble, the ivy the tree seedlings, um, and uh, allow the grassland plants to flourish. They've only been here a year, but you can already see quite an impressive amount of nibbling that's been going on. What difference has it made having science underlying the work here? Uh, It's always been very traditional for conservationists to just go out and remove bramble and ivy and trees um, if they're threatening grassland plants. And we... We've been working with the university really to um, look at how science can help us make better decisions when we're managing um, the, the area. So the curious finding that we've made is that these new hybrids, which can be different numbers of chromosomes compared to the parents, although they're reproducing asexually, producing seeds without sex, they do need pollination in order to drive and trigger the asexual formation of seeds. So this is quite curious, and we've found that among the rare hybrid species like Sorbus bristoliensis and Sorbus wilmotiana, this is being driven not by their own pollen, but by pollen from another species, particularly Sorbus aria, the original parent. And so these asexual plants, these rare plants, need to be pollinated by another Sorbus in order for them to set their asexual seed. It's very complicated, but the key finding is that Sorbus aria is important for providing the pollen that triggers the asexual seed set. So we've got to preserve enough Sorbus aria in the gorge, even though it's very, very common, we've still got to look after it in order to drive the reproductive process of the rare endemics and um, further their survival and reproductive output. So they're all still interlinked, even though they're separate species? Yes, and that's what's driving the process. This is a sort of new idea in, in, in conservation and wildlife management with these plants, is that you preserve the process rather than necessarily the rare plants themselves. So you concentrate on the process. And I suppose, Mandy, you didn't know any of this before this work started? No, because it was all very new at the time. So um, it, it, the project has been running since 1999, but having the university on board as one of the key partners is really critical to ensure that we do actually make the right decisions when we're doing conservation work. And how is this going to change if we came back in another 10 years? 
Well, this area, I hope, will be much more open and grassy. We are in um, a really beautiful area that has pockets of limestone grassland, so hopefully in 10 years' time um, we'll just have these beautiful open grassland um, areas in the sunshine, full of wildflowers, um, buzzing with all sorts of insects that depend on them. Mandy and Simon, thank you both very much. You can see pictures of our location here on the Planet Earth Online Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter. To reach us, put Planet Earth Online into any search engine. Next in the Planet Earth podcast, what happens to the hormone-disrupting chemicals found in contraceptive pills or hormone replacement therapies once they've passed through the body? Well, they end up in the sewage system and eventually as effluent in the rivers. But it seems many of these chemicals are still active and they're having an adverse effect on fish. I've been speaking to Charles Tyler from the University of Exeter, who's a world expert on the problem. One particular group of chemicals that we've been focused on are chemicals called estrogens or environmental estrogens. And these are chemicals that can mimic and copy the body's uh, hormone estrogen, which is, a, which is a, a female sex hormone. And they include, these estrogens include natural steroid estrogens derived from women, derived from, from, from the human population. They include contraceptive estrogens, things like ethanol estradiol from the contraceptive pill. Also, actually, things like horse estrogens, equine estrogens, which are used in hormone replacement therapy. Then in addition to that, they also include chemicals that copy and mimic the structure of those natural steroid lesions, so various industrial products. Now, we're in one of your aquarium labs at the University of Exeter and surrounded, well, floor to ceiling by transparent tanks. And to my right, there are these cuboid transparent tanks full of, well, beautifully coloured zebrafish zipping backwards and forwards and they're called zebrafish because they have these stripes running horizontally along them and each one I suppose I can't really measure them because they're going so fast about two centimetres long something like that yeah about three to four centimetres long and uh, yeah these are zebrafish these are one of the key model species that we now use to try and help us understand how some of these chemicals I mentioned they're called endocrine or hormone disrupting chemicals how they work in the body because we know now from studies on wild fish that they're being affected by these chemicals that are being discharged they're being feminised males are being feminised essentially and so one of the big questions that we're trying to address in relation to the use of the zebrafish is how and where these chemicals work in the body. Estrogens are involved with so many processes in the body beyond reproduction and uh, our concern if you like is that some of these chemicals might have wider effects than just on, on reproduction and reproductive function. And you say they're being feminized. What, what do you mean by that? that males are showing traits or characteristics which are normally found in females. So defining feminization in fish includes they're producing proteins which are normally only found in females, yolk proteins, for example, which normally go into the eggs. They include alterations in structures within the testis, so the male gonad. They include, in particular, the presence of developing eggs within the testis. So quite unusual phenotypes, quite unusual effects of, of being seen in, in the fish as a consequence of exposure to these estrogens. Now, these zebrafish in here are not ordinary zebrafish. These are, these are engineered to help you with the work. Absolutely. So, you know, the, these aren't native to English rivers, and we're using these very much as a model to try, as I say, understand how chemicals work in the body. And these, this is some work that Tetsu Kudu and a colleague uh, and myself have been developing uh, over time to help us 
understand where these chemicals work in the body. So these are what we call transgenic fish, and essentially there's some clever little genetic constructs have been placed into the, these fish, in turn, which then produce a green fluorescence. They glow green, essentially, in target tissues which are receiving and responding to these environmental estrogens. So you can see where you're getting this, this feminization. Absolutely. You you can see where these chemicals are working within the body. So, in fact, what you can see is that if you expose to different types of so-called environmental estrogens, you can see different tissues glowing green in the body. And that helps us to better target whether the chemicals are affecting perhaps the brain or the liver or indeed the gonad. Now, if you're a male fish... Feminization sounds like a bad thing, but not necessarily. I and mean, this is what you're investigating now. Absolutely. So our concern really has been that we have we find this widespread feminization of fish in English rivers, but we don't know whether it's causing uh, effects at the level of the population. Now, it matters if you're an individual fish and you're feminized because you have a reduced capability to breed. But does that really matter from the point of view of population? And when we think about protecting the environment, we don't protect at the level of the individual for wildlife like we do for human health. We protect at the level of the population. So some of our parallel work now is trying to address where there are changes in the populations of wild fish living in English rivers. And how do you go about doing that at a population level? I, I mean, you can see these, these zebrafish in the tank, you can see if they've got this fluorescence, so they're being feminised, but how do you take that next step? Addressing the population level sort of consequences of something like this is an extremely difficult and challenging uh, uh, question to address. In fact, there are very few examples for any chemicals discharging environment where you can show a population level effect and link it to a specific chemical. Uh, our charge, the way we're going about it, is we're trying to under- uh, address whether there's been changes in the genetic structure, uh, changes in the genetics of, of wild populations, and we're doing this by comparing those genetics of fish in the more polluted rivers with estrogens compared to those in cleaner environments. So we're using specific genetic tools to help us identify if the populations have changed. And how long will it take to to work the answer out? I, I guess you haven't got an answer at the moment. No, no, this is very much ongoing work. And, you know, to some extent, it, it, it also depends on, you know, how long one receives funding for, of course. And, and uh, these are big and challenging questions, and we've just started on this endeavour. And the likelihood is it's going to be, you know, a good five-year-plus before we really have a firm handle on whether wild populations are being impacted at the level of the population with these estrogenic chemicals. And is there an impact on human health as well, or, or, or is that something that's worth investigating? Uh, this this question's often asked, as you can imagine, and uh, often you know people ask, you know, what are the links between effects in wildlife versus those potential effects in human health? Now, there are, uh, what I would say is I tend to keep the two separate in the sense that there are pretty strong data showing uh, linkages between effects in wildlife species and specific endocrine disrupting chemicals. The situation in terms of human health is that there are a number of pretty well defined uh, and uh, data rich studies indicating uh, effects on things like male sperm count for example and sperm quality and exposure to uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals but they're only sort of you know correlations within human populations nevertheless a number of lab-based studies with rats and mice have shown that some of these chemicals for which we have concern can induce some of these disruptive or, or uh, um, adverse effects in relation to sort of reproduction and reproductive health 
But as far as you're concerned, it's it's the wildlife that you're looking at and, and the impact on, on rivers and the river ecosystem. Uh, very much so. In, in, I'm an environmental biologist at the end of the day, and I think there's uh, enough people out there studying and, and looking after human health. There's probably not enough of us trying to look after the environment. So, yeah, my major focus and charge is very much trying to understand, you know, to what extent you know, aquatic ecosystems are or might be affected by this class of chemicals. Charles Tyler from the University of Exeter. Well, I'm still on the edge of the Avon Gorge. There's still some rays of sunshine through the branches of the uh, trees above me. It's extremely windy and there's a rather ominous black cloud now looming overhead. And with me is Tamara Jones from Planet Earth Online with a few of the other stories you'll find on the website at the moment. And the first one, rather aptly, is an explanation for the miserable summers we've been getting in the UK. A bunch of researchers led by Professor Rowan Sutton from the University of Reading has found that the UK's recent run of dismal summers, you know, really wet, horrible summers we've been having over the last few years, seems to have been triggered or strongly influenced by a kind of warming of the water in the North Atlantic. And this has happened before. This isn't the first time. This is not necessarily a new thing. Exactly, and that's the reason they're confident there is a link between the two before back in 1931 to 1960 the same sort of thing happened so the north atlantic was pretty warm and it led to a kind of shift in the uk summers they were wet and there was flooding at linmouth and the east coast mainline was shut down because of flooding so yeah it's a similar pattern that they've 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 unearthed here that all sounds very very familiar what what's going on what's the process i have to say they don't fully understand this no they don't fully understand and like all things weather related it is pretty complicated but what they can say is that the the warmer water led to kind of a warmer warming in the atmosphere which led to a massive low and that low then ends up slap bang bang into the UK and they know that the, the jet stream is involved somehow in driving the this low towards the UK and bringing all this wet weather here but they don't they don't know at the moment and that's really the next area of research and trying to find out how long this warming is going to last because what they've said when I spoke to Professor Owen Sutton he says that because of this warming in the North Atlantic they know that this means that the, the likelihood of more UK wet summers or more wet summers here is more likely but how long it's going to go on for we just don't know so last time it was the 1930s to the 1950s great yeah it's a long time and the other thing is that we've only just recently got into this north this the warming of the north atlantic it started in the early 90s and the last lot of warming lasted for a long time we don't know though i mean he told me that we don't know if it's going to last that long at all there's also nothing new about humans messing with the atmosphere this is another story about methane in the atmosphere on planet earth online at the moment that's right. Well, researcher um, Dr. Celia Sapart from Utrecht University in, in the Netherlands has found that the, the amount of methane in the atmosphere has been kind of affected by humans for about the past 2,000 years, which was quite a surprise, really, because, you know, we've always assumed that methane levels in the atmosphere have really only been driven by human activity since the Industrial Revolution. And how did, how did she do this? Well, she looked at um, ice cores from the Arctic, looked at the amount of methane in the tiny bubbles that are trapped within these ice cores. And from that, she, you can kind of work out by using sort of things, things called isotopes, you can work out exactly where that methane has come from, whether or not that's a natural sort of source or a man-made source. And they found that right back, um, back in the Han Dynasty and the Roman Empire, that they would have produced um, methane, and that, that went up into the atmosphere. But it's worth noting, though, that about 90% of the methane has actually come from since the Industrial Revolution. 
Okay, well, it's now just starting to rain. It's that warm air over the Atlantic. Uh, Very briefly and finally, there's also a, a new online mapping service for life. That's right. Well, it's this this mapping service. It's called OneZoom. And it's based, it's a lovely um, interactive website that you can explore the tree of life with. Um, So rather than this tree of life just being on with one massive sheet of paper, which in fact you couldn't do, this mapping service enables you to zoom in to different areas of the tree of life so that you can see how different creatures are related and you can look at their conservation status and the the researcher who led this James Rosindo from um, Imperial College London is aiming to build on this tree of life because at the moment it just concentrates on mammals and you can find links to that and more on planet earth online do also track us down on facebook and twitter thank you Tamara the planet earth podcast is produced for the natural environment research council i'm richard hollingham and next time i'll be reporting from the middle of a very cold field in the middle of the norfolk fens it's all glamour here at the planet earth podcast thanks for listening